Welcome back, everyone. This is The Change Log, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 169, and on today's show, we're talking to Thomas Reynolds, the maker of Middleman. We've wanted to have this conversation for quite a while. We're Rubyists at our core here at The Change Log, and we use Middleman every single week to ship Change Log Weekly. We built that in Middleman. We're also building another site for Beyond Code in Middleman. Check that out beyondcode.tv that's our brief interview series we shoot at conferences after parties but Ruby's at our core hit here at the changelog we love middleman great conversation today with Thomas we have three awesome sponsors Codeship TopTal and DigitalOcean our first sponsor for the show is Codeship they've launched a brand new feature called Organizations and I've talked to several teams who love this new feature because now you can create teams set permissions for specific team members, and improve collaboration in your continuous delivery workflows. You can maintain centralized control over your organization's projects and teams with this brand new feature. Save 20% off any premium plan you choose for three months by using the code THECHANGELAWPODCAST. Again, that code is THECHANGELAWPODCAST. You'll save 20% off any premium plan you choose for three months. Head to CodeShip.com. Dot com slash the change law to get started and now on to the show all right we're back we got a great show lined up for you today we have been wanting to talk about middleman forever and when i say forever it's like the sandlot forever uh i've been using middleman for a long time jared how about you have you been using middleman for a while Actually, my first time with Middleman was when you brought me in on ChangeLog Weekly. Okay, so that was... Which was, you know, maybe six or seven months ago. Well, luckily it but was I've a Ruby thing. a lot then. lately, yeah. So we got Thomas Reynolds on the line here. He is the creator of Middleman. Thomas, hey, what's up? Hey, how you doing, all? So you're the technical director at Instrument. It's an independent uh-huh. digital creative agency. Is that your thing or is that somebody else's thing? That's someone else's thing. Um, we're a company of about 100, 110 people Whoa. in Portland, Oregon. Okay. Um, we're all centrally located. No remote workers, and um, wow. we just do really high-end digital marketing. Nice, man. Also, the creator of Middleman, and a foodie, book nerd, writer, and obviously a Rubyist, because you couldn't be the creator of Middleman without being a Rubyist first, right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen accidentally. So for those listening, Middleman is uh, a Ruby gem. It's a static site generator. Uh, and, and how long has it been around, Thomas? Uh, in its current stable form, it's been out for three years. Um, I just checked on GitHub. Uh, time since first commit, and the repo is just a little over seven years. Wow. I was going to say, it feels like so, so long. Ancient, ancient open source yeah. roots at this point. Yeah, definitely. If you get past five, it's it's getting into the... It's like the, the car, or suddenly a classic. Yeah, no, it's like marriage. Like it's just I wake up every day, and I do it, and I keep doing it every single day, and it, <laughs> it'll always probably be here with me. There you go. So before we kick off the full-on show and dive deep into Middleman, let's figure out who you are a bit. Kind of give us a bit about who you are. You already mentioned Instrument and the things you do there. So kind of give us a bit about your your history and who you are as a software developer. Yeah, so um, I've been in software development and mostly agency stuff uh, for about 16 years now. I got started really young, um, kind of grew up with the internet and was able to, you know, be a kid in high school and actually contribute uh, to open source and also, you know, to just fan sites and stuff. So uh, I got my start programming, uh, making levels for TIE Fighter, the flight sim video game for the PC way back in the day. And then I moved from there to like fan sites for that. And uh, 
eventually is like, oh, hey, I need to learn this SQL thing. Hey, I need to learn this HTML, whatever, three or whatever it was back then. Um, and so, yeah, I got my starts like uh, just doing super nerdy stuff on the Internet. Um, did that for a couple of years and uh, went off to school for a CS degree and then realized I was writing less code at school than I had been in my own free time. Uh, so I kind of dropped out, switched to like a liberal, uh, more liberal degree and just, you know, with a lot of reading, which was a lot more fun for me and then uh, put all my passion back into software development on like the open source side. Um, since becoming a full grown adult, uh, <laughs> I've been doing agency stuff now, oh boy, probably like eight to 10 years, uh, pretty much nonstop. So I've never really done any product stuff. I've never really done any startup stuff. Uh, I just kind of like the the heavy churn and like um, frequent new kinds of ideas uh, that you have to do like in an agency lifestyle. Have you ever got the itch, um, the startup itch? Uh, no, not really. I moved to Portland to get away from that stuff. So <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy just, uh, I don't know. I like doing new things. I probably mm -hmm. get a little bit bored. Other than middleman, I, I, I tend to like discard side projects. So, um, yeah. Slip, but, uh, yeah slightly so, off topic, since you're slowly. living in Portland, um, I'm a huge fan of Portlandia. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that show. Are, are you? Do you watch the show since you sort of live it every day, or do you just skip it? I don't really watch it. Um, but are you, you know, offended when it first by came it? Out, people, <laughs> yeah, that's like exactly the question people have. Uh, actually, no, I think it's. Um, the way I try to phrase this to people is a lot of people would see those caricatures as an insult and we take them as a point of pride. And that's just cause we're weird. Um, <laughs> like if we could get more people on weird bikes, that would be perfectly cool for us. Uh, that's why a lot of us moved here. Love Portlandia, um, man. Yeah, it's a great show and they're well-meaning and like, yeah. I, don't, I know Carrie grew up, you know, somewhere here in the Northwest. So right. I'm pretty sure she's well-meaning about it all too. I think it's the first time Jared on the show. I heard somebody say they quit their CSS, CS degree to go and code more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, so I went to Arizona State, which is uh, not necessarily known for its computer science degree. Um, but it was cheap. Uh, they launched a rocket once to Mars, and it deactivated as soon as it landed. So that pretty much tells you what you need to know about the program there. Um, so <laughs> I think Java, Sun, or I guess it was still Sun then, poured a ton of money into school. So I wrote two years of Java, which was not terribly exciting uh, projects. And given what your turn on oh, Sorry, ahead. Jared. Go ahead. I was going to say, what what turned you on originally to the to the open source world? That's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think back. It was probably... Actually, I just honestly don't remember. Hmm. Um, so as soon as I got into like agency stuff after college, it was a lot of... I did a lot of PHP, um, which is always kind of like a vaguely open source community. Mm -hmm. I don't know the actual structure, but they were pretty open. Um, and there was pretty... Uh, a large amount of community involvement, like as that uh, language grew. So I did a lot of that. And uh, you know, this is all pre GitHub. So open source was like this thing that took place on mailing lists. And um, maybe someone hosted a site, you could download like a tarball or something and install it. But um, there wasn't, it didn't feel like there was as big a community as there is now. Um, there were IRC channels that we could communicate, but it was probably something PHP based, you know, one of the, uh, database wrappers or something like that. I probably contributed stuff too early. So yeah, basically did a lot of PHP for years and years. Uh, discovered Ruby right as, you know, the great Rails explosion happened. Um, fell in love with it, especially since PHP was basically Perl at the time. Uh, got to use some things from CS that I hadn't used in a little while, like objects and, you know, classes and all the, you know, core object-oriented stuff that's in Ruby. 
And yeah, that's pretty much it. I started using Ruby uh, Rake specifically um, for a lot of tooling stuff for my front front end work. So you know, every time you know, I was at a okay agency, but we did mostly email templates. And it got to the point where it was like four to six email templates a day was the job. And um, most of that stuff can just be automated. You know, like Mailchimp will automate all that stuff for you now. You just kind of upload a couple things to them. Right. So started using Rake and started uh, you know building out. Uh, just little helpers, little tooling bits for myself. Interesting. It might make uh, some sense to rewind a little bit, though. I, mm-hmm. Given your agency experience, I do have a couple thoughts here, Mark, for that, getting closer to that subject. But um might make sense since the, you know, in terms of the Git history, I think you said it was seven years Git history you've got mm-hmm. from Middleman. So yeah. we're definitely talking about quite a bit of space and, you know, and time in there in terms of, the space that middleman occupies, which is the static site generator space. There's been lots out there in every kind of language you could think of. Um, Jared and I, we both have Ruby roots. So we, we kind of go back with, with all of that. But at the same time, I think a lot of the, at least what I can tell from my perspective is a lot of the static site generators came from the Ruby world and sort of came, Mm -hmm. you know, spread out to the other languages. So, what do you know of the history of, of these generators and, and where did middleman come from and what, what problems was it solving when it first uh, became something yeah. for you? Totally. Um, so yeah, kind of when I was like doing that email template work, you know, the other thing you wanted to automate at the same time was HTML and CSS. And um, this was right about the time that Hamel had come out. And so that just took a lot of the work out of, you know, doing just incredible amounts of tables and all the stuff we yes, had to do totally. for emails back in the day. Uh, so I started looking around for some tools at the time. I think, um, Nanoc existed. Yeah. Uh, Static existed. I'm not entirely sure if Jekyll existed publicly yet, but, um, it was all about that time. Looking back and Jekyll looks like their initial launch was like end of 2008. It was probably out there. Yeah. It was probably, um, being talked about on the blogosphere or whatever we called it. Right. Um, yeah. So I, uh, Liked Staticmatic personally. Uh, it was already open source. You could already, you know, check out all the code, and it was pretty easy to get code back upstream uh, with that team. So I started using Staticmatic for myself, and you know, got into the forums and um, kind of got involved with that community. Uh, and basically, slowly over time, I committed a larger and larger share of the pull requests uh, until the point where the original creator was, you know, didn't have the time for it as much anymore. So we basically, the you know the 1.0 of middleman is uh, somewhat of a fork of staticmatic. So we just kind of renamed it, moved the repos, and uh, moved a lot of the community stuff over into my name. I did not know that part, that it was sort of a fork, because I feel like staticmatic is where it all began. It, and mm-hmm. it sounds like that's what you said, too. Is that right? Yeah, at least for me. I mean, I, I know Nanic existed, and it seemed uh, at a glance to be more complicated than I wanted to get into. I never really went all the way down that road, so I don't. I can't actually say if that's true. Mm-hmm. But Staticmatic kind of uh, matched up a little bit more to how I wanted to use the tool. Adam, I don't know if you remember a little bit of my roots was in the Perl community in college, and uh, my first kind of exposure to blogging at all was because basically my professor told us we had to blog, and they gave us this Perl thing. I think it was called like Blogsum, something like that, mm-hmm. and it was a static site generator. Um, in Perl, this is like 2005, 2006, and I thought it was super lame. Uh, <laughs> and then I found WordPress, and I was like, why would I want to have static sites 
when I can have dynamic, like changing, database-driven WordPress, you know, sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then there were there's obviously reasons why you would want to have a static site. We can get into all that, but it was kind of funny because once Jekyll dropped and these and Staticmatic, I started seeing this like rise of these static site generators. I was like, what is wrong with these people? Yeah. Like, <laughs> why are we like WordPress? And, these things are cool, like static files. Like that's. I had a similar thought when I, I don't think I've ever shared this story publicly, but when Wynn and I first, so Wynn and I started this show together way back in 2009. And the first time I met Wynn was at a Ruby meetup here in Houston. And he was doing a presentation on something new they had done. And they had re- just rebuilt the squeegee website, which was Wynn's uh, original consultancy before he uh, sort of went independent and then ultimately went to GitHub. Um, he loved Staticmatic and he was given a presentation on it. And I was like, same thing. Why? And, you know, and I was a WordPress guy at the time. Like I was mm-hmm. using that stuff. Why would I, you know, you know, learn and write Ruby only to create static sites? I don't get it. And, but it was a big, big thing then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I got into it to make HTML email. It was, there was no option other than static, right? Because right. you just throw this thing over to wire and it's got to all be um, self-contained. Right. But yeah, I think it's kind of re- really interesting over the years. Like, And as Middleman has gained popularity, there's something happened. And I don't know if it was, you know, we got tired of the complexity. We got tired of like the stack churn or the security issues around like full like backend apps, but there's definitely now, you know, you see all these blog posts coming around that are just like, there's no reason not to do static. I mean, almost everything you can accomplish other than like a form and maybe e-commerce, you know, you can do statically and then you never have to worry about, you know, any security implications. Yeah, I remember my tune started to change when I would consistently see different WordPress sites get taken down by, I think it was Dig Mm -hmm. back then. Yes. Um, You know, the Dig effect or something like that. And it would just crush under a little bit of load. And that's when I started saying, okay, you know, static HTML files makes a lot of sense in that regard. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, I mean, just because I come from an agency background before, you know, like the modern age, um, that's what we deliver. That's what our contracts say we deliver. We deliver Mm. like the static packet of a website. And if you want to throw it into a Rails app or if you want to just like drag FTP it to some, you know, GoDaddy server, that's up to you. Um, So it was also a lot of that kind of work is self-contained in that way. That's that's kind of leading into, I guess, the slightly uh, a good segue into the next step, which is given your... Uh, agency experience now at Instrument, I got to imagine that a lot of what you've done with middlemen over the years with the contributors and the contributor, uh, your core team and the contributors who've, who've helped get middlemen to where it is now today, I got to imagine a lot of that's playing back into your full time. Uh, a little bit. Um, I pretty much do nothing but JavaScript on my day job. Um, I, I manage a team of people as well. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, I've tried to, I had tried to keep the two separate. You know, I didn't want to like, you know, I made this thing, therefore we should use it, especially before it got enough popularity to kind of justify that kind of stuff. Um, so I've always just kind of left it on the side. If people ask about it in like Slack or something, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know how that thing works. Um, but yeah, maybe in the last year, we've actually been hiring people and they've come in the door knowing it. So now uh, we do tend to use it on a lot more projects and I am a little more hands on with like actually adding features or, you know, fixing specific bugs from people in house. So you said the original crux that was sort of originally somewhat of a fork of Staticmatic, the problems mm-hmm. initially were, you know, HTML email driven. Is is that mm-hmm. when it was, that was obviously middleman version one. How has middleman changed over the years in terms of the problems it's been solving and, and the evolving problem it's been solving? 
Yeah, so I just looked, um, you know, one and two were these kind of small releases that uh, I don't know how many people were actually using it, probably people who moved on from Staticmatic. Um, There's also a period of time there where Jekyll went completely unmaintained, other than like the Octopress work that was happening. Uh, so I think we got a lot of people from there, but I just looked it up and we've been on the stable, current stable branch since 2012. Um, I think that's when uh, it really kind of took off. And that's when I was also doing Rails stuff on the side and I wanted to align um, the two kind of workflows. So rather than just being like, it's a whole separate tool, I, I wanted it to be like conceptually, you could come directly over from Rails and then, you know, if you can just make a static site or you can put a static site in your Rails if you want to like keep, you know, one piece separate or a little more secure. Uh, so yeah, I think version three was like the big leap forward. Uh, built it on top of um, some of the Merb stuff, which eventually became in the Rails, but I used a lot of their tooling. Uh, we still use internally for a lot of our code, uh, the Padrino library. Yeah. Um, that's like a Sinatra alike for um, Rails. And then whenever we have like a discussion on API, we try to go check out the Rails API and make sure we're keeping things as similar as possible so we can bring people over from the rest of the Ruby community. Do you mean things like uh, rendering parcels, uh, different helpers that are available in Rails that people sort of, so people can essentially yeah. copy and paste views but to a, to a degree totally. potentially back into a Rails app? Yeah, I mean, we still have like a huge reliance on YAML for like configuration. We have... Um, all the helpers, like you said, like your normal link helpers, your uh, localization helpers, we bring over directly. Um, most of the, we support, I think, every templating language that could possibly exist in some fashion. So definitely all the Ruby stuff, most of the JavaScript stuff, you know, pretty much any language that can be, you know, shelled out to and come back, uh, we support that. Very cool. So there, I mean, there there have been tons of these tools over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. We've mentioned a few here. I think there was one called. Uh, stasis uh mm-hmm. there's just there's been a lot of them uh webby was one i think i used webby back in the day all ruby tools and yet serve. middleman what's that serve serve i don't know that one it's yeah, it's you, not being maintained now but it was one that was it was one that john long had mentioned we talked about that on the octopus mm-hmm. show with the yeah. with oh, brandon okay. mathis very cool so middleman has has stood out from the crowd it's it's kind of been more successful it's gotten more uh, it's obviously been sustained longer, but it has more excitement around it, more people using it. Uh, big players like uh, ThoughtBot, and um, there's a couple more on your website that I can't think of off the top of my MailChimp. head. MailChimp. MailChimp, thank you. So can you attribute that to anything in particular? Was it you know pure luck, or is there something about Middleman that stands out from the crowd? Um, yeah, I actually think uh, I have a kind of different opinion about open source from the rest or the, at least the modern kind of JavaScript crowd, which I don't think things should be throwaway. I think there's a responsibility attached to saying, you know, I want you to spend your days and hopefully not your nights coding with my thing. And that, you know, it, it, it kind of sucks when you have to maintain that for years and years and years. But um, that's like the bargain you're making by publicly saying, hey, go use my thing. I put it on GitHub. Uh, so I think what I contribute most of middleman success to is basically uh, stability and like respect for people's time. So, you know, we've been at 3.0 stable, uh, for a little over three years now. And the APIs are pretty much the same. If you go make it a site like a year ago, it's going to be exactly the same. Now, um, things aren't going to change under your feet. 
and you're just going to have like a stable like platform. It's not that complicated. The things we do are pretty self-contained. Hmm. So we just do those things well and get out of your way as quickly as possible. And we've done it for three years. So, you know, there wasn't like, oh, I got to switch. I mean, there will be soon, but there wasn't like, I got to switch to the Rails 4 <laughs> rewrite. Like, what am I going to do with myself? Right. Um, I'm glad you said that because that's actually an issue I've had with the static st- generators over the years is that I would build something, let's say a one-off simple static site for somebody and then have to go back and like make an update or something like that to it. And then, you know, building it locally or something like that becomes an issue because the latest version breaks things. And then I got to spend another hour or so trying to fix things or link to helpers or just weird things that have changed in the APIs of, of like the little things. Mm-hmm. And the stability to me was a, a big thing for middleman because I'd gone through Statomatic and several others. And then finally, you know, I'm using something like middleman, you know, almost every time I do something static, Unless it's actually really static, um, and and never having to deal with those those issues where I don't touch it for six months and it's still the same, you know, I could just run it. Yeah, we want to fight that whole hype churn cycle. Yeah, like there's no reason for that. Mm. I, there are so few uh, really revolutionary ideas, and you know what? I like, like maybe take the Ember community stance on it. Like if they're really revolutionary, we'll fold it in and we'll do it stably, slowly over time, and we'll document it well. But I'm not going to jump on the hype train, you know, and break your site from a year ago. It's great we have tools like uh, Bundler now that can protect us from a lot of that kind of, you know, come back to a thing six months later and it's not working anymore. Um, but, you know, you should also be able to do bundle update and not have your entire world explode. Hmm. I like that. So you have this commitment to re- reliability and stability, and you've been doing that mm-hmm. over the years. Um, that's pretty rare in open source. Um, Very. And so I wonder, like, what... Why? Like, what do you get out of it? What, is it just... I don't know what I get out of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Inertia. Inertia? Um, I like doing it. I um, I don't know. I So we have uh, a couple community, like, outlets from Middleman. So there's, like, public chat channels. There's a public forum. Um, what else is there? Uh, I don't remember. There was an email group at some point. But basically, I don't go there. Like, I set up these systems for the community to, you know, self-help. And then I only respond on GitHub pull requests or you know, Twitter harassment. Um, and I think that's also another thing. Like, if you're just in the trenches there, like, you know, managing the forum day in and day out, I think it'll, and, you know, you get to see people telling you that you kind of ruined their weekend because you wrote some <laughs> bad bug. Um, I think it maybe drags on you a little bit more, mm-hmm. but I try to keep myself completely separate from that. And uh, people in the community have stepped up and been those kind of like community leaders and it all works out for everyone. Yeah, look at the forum now. It's it's uh it's pretty active. I mean, yeah. a lot of people in there. I mean, I'm not uh, diving into a lot of these notes here, but I'm just scrolling this uh, this endless scroll. Um, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff happened. Yeah, a lot of a lot of that is just holes in documentation. Where um, uh, are all, all of our documentation is on GitHub. It's all community um, contributed to. So I did like a bunch of the big chunks of initial writing, but it's all kind of maintained itself uh, through people, you know, not quite being able to parse a sentence or, you know, I'm not making the right point that they're trying to get to, or I, you know, put something on the wrong page, but uh, you're never going to be able to document everything. Uh, Again, kind of like the Ember model, I went with like a plain text tutorial style for my documentation as opposed to API docs, which are a little more, uh, provide better coverage, but uh, are kind of harder to understand if you don't know what's going on inside the system. Um, and so, yeah, so it just leaves like narratively like a feature missing just because I couldn't fit it onto any of the pages. And I think the forum is really good about that. Uh, 
just being like, hey, there's this thing. Why isn't it documented? Well, like four people use it, but you know, here it is on the forums for you. So if a doc needs updated, someone could go to GitHub, fork it, and let's say like a misspelling or you yep. know, something's changed, someone from the community, uh, whether they're in the core team or not, could step in and help out uh, as needed. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, there's a pull request button at the bottom of every page on the documentation site, so we make that as easy as possible. So we talked a little bit about, you know, it's makeup. Can can we talk a little bit about, let's say, like a, a file structure? You said it's a lot like the Rails view layer. Was that on purpose? Did you look at the Rails view layer and say, this is how it should be? This is how a middleman site should be structured and how it should be laid out? Mm-hmm. Is it really meant to be uh, a lot of plug and play in between that and Rails? Kind of. I don't think we follow the file layout of Rails because they've got a pretty deep named structure. Uh, the way our philosophy works is you have a source directory and conceptually you look at everything in there and that's what you get on the way out. You can do some metaprogramming, you can do all these fancy configuration options, but we try to do a one-to-one from that folder to your build folder. So if I have index.html.erb, I'm going to get an index.html out. Uh, so for most people's sites, you should just you shouldn't have like all this magic happening. You should just be able to say, you know, it's a pipeline. You come in as SASH, you come out as CSS. So it matches, the structure of source matches however you want to structure your code. So if you want a fonts directory, have at it. If you want to put it inside your CSS, that's fine with us too. And the reason why I ask is because I, I think what, and I could be wrong here, but it's at least happened to me several times, is that you know I'm a Rubyist only to a certain point, or I'm a backend developer only to a certain point that I don't do it because there's people who are better than it than me at it. And I may want to go buck wild on the view, and build out a site, but I don't have, you know, all the routes in place and all these different things that sort of stand in your way when you work in a Rails team. And it felt always mm-hmm. a lot easier to sort of like build out something statically, you know, with all the URLs and all these different things that I think of as a UX or designer standpoint or a front end builder standpoint and build, you know, a good portion of my prototype or even my prototypes to prove to the business team, like, hey, we can build this or this is the direction we should go. I'll build that mm-hmm. middleman with almost zero resistance and really a, not a lot of Ruby knowledge beyond, you know, what the docs can easily provide in terms of middleman routing and stuff, and then give that over to my Rails team or demonstrate that and be able to take a lot of what I've done already and just pull it right into the Rails app with almost no no issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like we map to the way it used to be on the front end. You just you pop open a new folder, you open Notepad or whatever, and you just start making files, right. your static files. And you wrote all your HTML, you wrote all your CSS, and you put 50 script tags into your HTML. And, you know, the reason we don't do some of those things now is because, you know, SAS is faster. Um, templating is faster. Uh, you know, we want to compress things smaller for the uh, the end user. But none of those are like changing the flow. So middleman steps in and says, I'll handle concatenating all your JavaScript. I'll handle your shortcuts in SAS. Just keep writing, you know, the same kind of straightforward, completely back-end free uh, approach to, you know, front-end coding. The cool thing about long-term projects is there's lots of things that change over the years, and then there's lots of things that stay the same. And it seems like when you strike a chord early on um, in architecture or, you know, those big decision-making um, you can just kind of refine over the years. And Thomas, you recently wrote a post on your blog, which I believe is award-winning fjords, which that's, that's correct, correct, right? That's like the <laughs> best website name I think I've ever heard. I'm pretty jealous of it. Um, I also have the fjords Twitter account, but I haven't figured out what to do with it. 
Yeah, just hold on to that baby and just wait, wait for the <laughs> wait for the check. There's a Norwegian hardcore band who always, who I always get subtweeted by. Which is pretty cool. Uh, completely off topic, but kind of related is <laughs> <laughs> whoever the guy who had the Alphabet account on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, yeah, I saw that. Oh man, he's sitting on a on a gold mine there after Google renamed. But mm-hmm. um, so yeah, maybe Fjord. Maybe someday, you know, you'll have some large company rename themselves to Fjord, and you'll just be sitting on. I like it. it. Um, but you've had, uh, you know, over the years, you refine your thoughts, you refine even the way you write code, and mm-hmm. uh, it seems like that is something that's happened to you in kind of dramatic ways. Um, you recently published a post back in March called My Weird Ruby, um, where you go through kind of how you write Ruby code today and how that's way different from probably back in 2010 uh, when you started Middleman. So I'm going to tee that up. We need to take a break, hear from a sponsor. But on the other side of the sponsor break, I want to hear your thoughts on why your Ruby is weird and how that has affected Middleman 4. So we'll be right back. You've heard me talk about TopTal several times on this podcast. But today is different. I've got a special treat for you. I went out and spoke with a listener who a year ago had never heard of TopTal. He listened to the show just like you're doing right here, right now, today, and heard us talk about TopTal and what they're all about. And he decided to get in touch. And now he's living the dream as a freelance software developer with TopTal. His name is Daniel Elzon. And I sat down and I talked with him. I said, hey, what is it that you love most about TopTal? Take a listen. Well, for me, the, the thing about TopTal, which I thought would be very hard for me personally as I transitioned to a more consulting role, uh, was the, the way I would have access to new clients and what quality of those would be. So I found that I've had access to awesome clients through TopTal, and it hasn't been that hard to find because they have a lot of choice. And even more than that, uh, there's enough choice, and I, I can actually be a little selective about what kinds of things I want to be working on. So I use that as a way to sort of hone my skills and, you know, go towards the technology that I think are, are worth investing in for the future. So whether it's, you know, including new front-end frameworks or doing a little DevOps work on the side, I, I, I usually am able to find clients who are uh, have the needs of the things I want to get better at. So that's been, that's been uh, truly useful. All right, that was Daniel Lazan, a listener of The Change Log and also a freelance software developer with TopTal. If you want to follow in Daniel's footsteps, go to toptal.com slash developers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash developers to learn more about what TopTal is all about and tell them the changelog sent you. All right, everybody, we're back speaking with Thomas Reynolds about Middleman and Thomas, you've been working on Middleman 4 for a while now. Um, you've recently published a po- blog post entitled My Weird Ruby, um, wherein you state, over the past year, I've been re- rewriting large portions of the Middleman code base to better reflect how I like to write code, as opposed to the silly version of, of, of mine. Who oh, did, typo. Oh, typo. Expo- we'll Typo's exposed. Out. Breaking news here on the change log. <laughs> There's a typo in a blog post. Uh, as opposed to the silly version of the old person six years ago. So you've been rewriting a lot since. You've learned things. You've changed your style. And that's kind of dramatically affected the middleman code base. Can you speak to that? Yeah, totally. Um, so kind of like I said, I do a lot of JavaScript at work. Um, 
I do Ruby for Middleman. I have done Clojure. I have done Java and um, got into some Haskell. And I like to like try as many different languages as possible. And you know, there's always good ideas. You can bring them all back. So I can write another post later called Migrate JavaScript because it's equally silly, but it's kind of got the same gist. Um, yeah, like when I started Middleman, uh, Ruby was getting popular, but Ruby is also kind of a minefield of features. Um, some great stuff in there. There's some stuff you should never, ever use. I think, uh, you know, like Rails 2 had a bunch of these, like just mix-ins forever uh-huh. or, you know, duck typing and all these kind of very uh, famously Ruby features that you probably wouldn't want to use in production. Alias like, method chain. Yeah. Alias method chain. That was, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's how Middleman 2 looked like. That's what Middleman 3 pretty much looked like with some more inspiration um, from Rails 3, which has a lot more of uh, this kind of, I don't know, they have a completely crazy uh, mix-in inheritance chain thing that's still in there that I don't understand, but um, so that's what, it looks a lot like Rails. But, you know, it's been two, three years since that stable version. I've just been making bug fixes on there, and then I spend most of my day doing other languages. So uh, I've just come up with a bunch of things, seen a bunch of things in other languages that I like, and I want to bring them back. So I don't, every time I, I would fix a bug um, in the stable branch of Middleman, I would realize that this could have been solved. Like I would have, if I had just used something from Haskell, if I had just used something from Clojure, um, this would never have been a problem. Uh, so I think the biggest one for me is uh, maturing as a developer and deciding that I actually do like static typing. And, you know, the, all the loose typing of Ruby was a really big selling point when it was first coming out because you know, people are coming out of the Java world and such. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? Those things caught bugs. They caught bugs without writing tests. And I think uh, being able to type your code, especially public code that other people are going to want to interact with as like a public API is a really great approach. So... I discovered this library about a year ago um, called Contracts, which uh, uses a lot of metaprogramming magic to wrap every single um, uh, variable and every single uh, method with like a little wrapper, and then you define what kind of things should go into the function and what kind of things are allowed to come out of the function, and this little wrapper will check them and throw exceptions uh, if you're in like dev mode or test mode. And so that just allows you to say, you know, there's a lot of places where in middleman and in Ruby, you say, here's a method, it's called, you know, I'm looking at one here, find. It could take a symbol, it could take a string, it could try to like turn those two into the same thing. Uh, it could take a regex, you never know. And there's a lot of these kind of like open magical APIs throughout Rails in the Ruby world. Uh, I decided I didn't like that very much. So I went whole hog with this contracts library and I added type information to every single um, variable and definition uh, inside of my middleman code. And what that gave me was an insane number of, uh, bug reports that, uh, my test suite, my test suite of, you know, something like 4,200 tests didn't catch just like, then people were probably saying, Oh yeah, like I know to put a symbol here. They don't know to put a symbol here. Um, and the amount of documentation they would need to figure that out. It's just, they're never going to look it up. So, uh, that was like the first big refactor to, um, middleman four. And it's completely, you know, opaque to the user. That's just for me. So I can catch bugs earlier. And so I feel a little safer when I'm working with this relatively large code base. So that just begs the question, uh, you know, you're basically adding like static type checking to Ruby, I guess. Mm-hmm. Why not just, you know, try a different language? Yeah. I mean, that's just goes back to my stability thing. Yeah. I mean, the roots are in the community. My contributors speak Ruby, uh, 
the, the big rewrite is always a terrible idea, especially if you're switching languages. You might as well just start a whole new thing. Um, that would have been a lot of work. It's not a tiny code base doing a lot of weird stuff. I feel, I feel like if I could, I would maybe have rewritten it in Clojure, but then um, at the time, getting Clojure up and running was kind of a pain. Mm. Nowadays, I think you can just run it right through Node, which is pretty cool. But uh, at the time, it wasn't the, the best fit. There has been uh, rumors you know, of gradual typing being added to future versions of Ruby. So this may be a feature that I just switched to the official support mm. if that comes down the road. I've never heard of this contracts library. Can you tell me where it's at or talk about it a bit? Uh, it's just called contracts.ruby. It's a little hard to find, but it's, um, I think... It's got such a general post, name, it's really hard to search <laughs> yeah. for. Yeah, so like it's not really typing. It's just designed by contract mm-hmm. concept, which is basically um, lightly enforced types. Like Things will still work. It'll just be able to complain about it. Right. Uh, so I don't know where it came from, but... Um, the gentleman who runs it has started use, uh, updating it a lot more recently, and there's third-party contributors adding code to it now. So it seems like it's kind of gaining a little popularity. Um, I would never use it in production. The whole point of this thing is, you know, it throws an exception during your test suite, not, you know, when someone's actually trying to use your code. This is something that you've heard of, Jared? Well, I heard of it in March when I read uh, his blog post, but I haven't heard of it elsewhere. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so it's active. That's great. Um, when I was using it, it actually was inactive. It would just been like an experiment that someone had put together. So a uh, little bit risky, but it's pretty easy to comment out. It's just every single one of these definitions starts with the word contract. It's a pretty easy search and replace to go back to the old buggy version. But um, I found that I really enjoy it. Uh, I'm looking to... Um, decorators in JavaScript to add some more functionality uh, on the JavaScript side so I can add some type information and have it copy the test suite. Hmm. So Adam and I are in a bit of a unique position because we have a a site um, which we use to to generate our weekly newsletter, Changelog Weekly, which is a Middleman 3 site. And we've also been working on a, a new site for our video series, Beyond Code, um, which is a Middleman 4 site because i hopped on the beta because i like pain i guess uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually it hasn't been too painful a few a few things um and i can definitely attest to the fact that this contracts piece is completely invisible to an end user because um i would have never even known about it had it not been for this post one thing i have felt as an end user is you've also introduced a lot of uh immutable data structures mm-hmm. um can you speak about that and then maybe i can give you a little bit of feedback from from my, my yeah, perspective totally. yeah Yep, that also just comes from my experience in these kind of more functional languages. Um, They tend to prevent a large class of bugs just because you're not doing weird loops and messing with your stuff. Um, One bug we got a lot back in the day was we have this directory of data files and there's YAML information in it. And so from the templating side, you can go ahead and say, you know, grab the first five people from this YAML file. And people would then go add another person to that array and then expect it to persist and also expect it to um, somehow sync back to the data side, to the actual file structure. Uh-huh. And so one of the main reasons for going with, um, it's still kind of an experiment. I put in hamster, which is one of these mm-hmm. uh, kind of wrapper libraries. And so you talk about a hamster hash instead of like a native Ruby hash. And what it basically does is it just doesn't give you methods uh, to alter data that's not allowed to be altered, like this kind of static YAML data. Um, I put like a lot of things in, in version four. I think I tried to refactor without touching the API to tools that I like a little bit more. That one 
is definitely the newest, and I've also run into surprises around it, especially if you don't even know it's there, and right. suddenly it's throwing these crazy errors at you. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear some uh, stuff about that. I think that trying to get people on the beta so we can uh, flush this out, but that's going to be day one, 4.0 stable. Right. You know, there'll be probably 30 bug reports and try to get the messaging right around it, I think. Yeah, I think my experience is mostly around what you said when you don't even know that that's what you're working with. And it's kind mm-hmm. of like the uncanny valley where it's like it's almost an array or it's almost a hash um, until mm-hmm. you find out that it's not. Um, and the specific thing that I hit quite often um, is probably difficult to explain on air like this. Um, but I am using the the data directory, and basically what we have is a bunch of seasons of of the of the show, and then each season has mm-hmm. some episodes uh, kind of nested inside of it, and. Uh, in certain cases, I was trying to like just flatten, so I like mapping over the seasons to get the episodes, and then flatten that into mm-hmm. a single array of episodes. Um, and you can't flatten a hamster data set, um, probably because it's immutable, right? Although with the flatten uh, call, I was trying really, to ret- I was trying to really return sh- a new one. Yeah, I should have just returned a new one. It really should have worked. Yeah. Um, well, but yeah, that's a great call out. <laughs> well, if, if it's not one to one with like, the native Ruby stuff, then it, that's definitely a problem. Um, the truth, unfortunately, the like native Ruby API is expansive and yeah, exactly <laughs> editable. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'll take a look at that and see if uh, they just got some missing. You know, it might just be an alias, right? Like right. Half the things on the Ruby uh, uh, hash and array libraries are aliases for three other things. It's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, I guess it turns out we brought you on air just to bug report for you. So. <laughs> the only thing more exciting than live coding is live bug reporting. Live bug reports. Uh, why everybody just, just the facts, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now it has to get fixed, right? Because it's on air. Um, yeah, totally. So you have okay. So you got contracts. Um, you know, you're you're playing with uh, immutability, and I think that's just a great point that you know when you have a beta, and even yours has been in beta for a while now. Like mm-hmm. you, the point of a beta is for people to hop on and and do the bug reporting, but you actually don't get very many until you announce that you know that official release, and then all of a sudden everything kind of just swarms totally. in. I wonder if there's like, is there any way we can make that? Stuff. Can we fix that problem? Is there any way? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. So uh, this is kind of a tangent, but there was a pretty good blog post. I'll dig up the URL for you later, but it was, you know, always use uh, simple tools. And it kind of has this philosophy. It's like, you know, it shouldn't surprise you. It should just be simple and get out of the way. It's way and do its job. And then you should go home. So I don't know if I want to ask people to spend their weekends or their extra time sure. you know, making their work stuff work for my beta but um and actually i'm not entirely sure how smooth the upgrade process is going to be um Mm. we removed a lot of features we removed redundant features so uh a lot of like we didn't remove uh, functionality but there might be a little bit of editing so uh, we'll try to figure out uh, you know ember again does a really great job with these upgrade guides we're going to try to figure out a way to document and say like we expect this to take you an hour or two hours, so you don't just go down a rabbit hole trying to upgrade to this. Mm-hmm. So I find it, I just back to the uh, the conversation about the kind of the weird Ruby style, and uh, a related question around that is, you know, you have years and years of writing Ruby. You're obviously a JavaScript developer as well, and it sounds like you have some ex- exposure to Clojure and uh, a few other languages. So here we are, you know, mid 2015, and there's a lot of new and exciting languages kind of out there. Um, ones that are kind of capturing the the hearts of many developers are 
uh, things like Go. I think Rust is pretty exciting to a lot of people. Uh, of course, the functional languages like Clojure as well. Are you still bullish on Ruby after all these years, or are you are your eyes starting to to wander into these other camps? Um, you know, it just depends what kind of project you want to build. Uh, I would never, you know, go and you know if you just want a straight fast API to just crank out some JSON. Uh, Go is really good for that. Uh-huh. If you want to build a web server, you know, Rust is probably really good for that. I would, I would probably never build a web server in Ruby. That would be crazy. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's, everything's got its place. I think Ruby still reigns supreme for mostly because of Rails. Um, just like I need a website, I need a traditional front and back end, and this is the most stable, uh, most secure one you can probably get other than maybe some PHP stuff. But it's definitely the most fun to work in for that trade-off. So I think it'll it'll have it'll be in that space for a while. Um, we still use it at work, so you know it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, All right. I, I I am I am opposite. What is the opposite of bullish? Bearish. Bearish. Yeah, I am bearish on JavaScript still. So. Are you really? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, uh, you know, I don't I don't I dread the day when you know. I just remember, like, you're on the plane and, like, the kiosk crashes with a Windows warning. I dread the day when I see, like, JavaScript crashed in Chrome right. as, like, my airplane warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's probably one of the worst <laughs> languages we have to use on a, on a uh, reasonable basis. Yeah. Uh, so I would not, I would, I would go to Ruby for JavaScript in a lot of cases mm-hmm. for similar tasks, like task running or, um, you know, even exactly something like middleman. So that leads me into the question about these uh, about the the front end frameworks. So middleman seems like it could be a decent uh, generator for an app that is an Ember or a, a Angular based uh, you know fat client. Is that the case, or mm-hmm. should you use their tools directly for um, these kind of things? That's a good question. Um, I would probably just say use their tools. The Ember command line tool is really really good. Mm-hmm. It's really really focused. And, you know, if you're not writing a ton of uh, HTML, you know, we don't solve a lot of problems for you. Mm. And if you're all client side, then we're not solving your routing or like your file structure problems for you either. So probably use their tools. Uh, But, you know, where we succeed now and where we're seeing a lot of heavy usage is uh, is blogs, is large documentation sites, Mm. a lot of like this kind of uh, generated content from some other source. So you have a pile of markdown files and you want a full localized documentation site. So, you know, people like Basho and Nest and a bunch of all these, uh, you know, uh, MailChimp build these large documentation portals kind of on Middleman because they can just do a couple loops, do a couple templates and get these large, large sites out the side. Uh, That said, I'm still trying to use it uh, for my front end work as well. So uh, version four, probably the biggest feature that I use on a daily basis is this ability to... Uh, run sub-processes inside a middleman. So basically what you say is, I want you to boot up the Ember CLI web server, and I want you to proxy from middleman to that. So if two-thirds of your site and all of your CSS is in middleman, then you let Ember um, return the JavaScript, and then we all just build as one cohesive whole. So I've been using Webpack a lot, just because Webpack and Babel give me some nice tools on the front end to use modern JavaScript. And then that just fills kind of like the sprockets role in my middleman stack, and then everything else is still middleman. So we're experimenting with that. It seems to be working pretty smoothly. Any other major uh, middleman four features? I know a lot of it has been pulling out old cruft. Is there is there anything else that you're excited about for the new version? There's some light stuff. Uh, we switched to a rail style environment split. So before you just had you know 
are you building? Are you deving? Now it's like, do you want to build for staging? Do you want to build for hotfix branch? Do you want to build for production? Uh, so that gives a little bit more control for multiple environments, for testing environments, and um, you know, using stuff like Travis to deploy builds that maybe not ready to go into production. Uh, the other big one, I think, is moving all of our base templating stuff to GitHub. So before, you'd have to install RubyGem outside of Bundler, hope it's there globally, and then initialize it through Middleman. Uh, now you just give it a GitHub path or any Git path, and it'll just pull down that whole repo as like your starter template for a new project, and then it'll run your custom code. So it's a lot some more similar to something like Yeoman, um, where we let everyone manage their own stuff rather than having to go through our like kind of RubyGem pipeline. Do you think it's a an issue since you mentioned, you know, who might be using middleman and what languages we talked about languages and, you know, choices and whatnot is the fact that middleman is a Ruby uh, gem. Does that stop people from using it? Those who care about languages, is there, is there a competitors to middleman and other languages that sort of make you think, man, I kind of, uh, they're stealing my thunder here. Yeah, I mean, the install setup story for Ruby has always been pretty hard. Right. Uh, it's still really, really bad on Windows. So, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of sucks. You know, the, the trade-off is this is a tool you use for work. It's important. It's going to save you time. So spend the 30 minutes necessary to get your Ruby gems set up. But, yeah, that, that that's not great. Um, there's one in Go. What was that called, Jerry? We just talked about that. It's like a, Hugo. It's like a Hugo, yeah. Big call, yeah. Uh, Super jealous of that because they get because Go gets compiled to a single or not single, but it, it compiles to multi-platform right. binaries. So you just drag this file on your hard drive and everything's perfect. Um, not going to rewrite for that, but that's a pretty cool feature. Um, and then now this the ubiquity of Node gives something like uh, MetalSmith or uh, a couple of the other Node ones. It's, it's just it feels more natural for a front-end person to install those libraries now, or they probably already have right. Node installed. Because if your audience is a designer or a front-end person, then you're from, you know, if you're coming from NPM, you're already in their world. Basically, you're already in their tool set. Yeah, uh, there's no change there. And to, I always wondered if if Ruby would hurt you over time, considering that the people that are writing Rails apps typically aren't building middleman sites. I guess Jared's an anomaly potentially, but it's typically somebody that's you know more of a front end player than than a back end player. Mm -hmm. Right, I just think yeah, I mean, tool for the job. Anecdotally, I think a lot of people do come from Rails, and though, and then we also have a lot of people who classify themselves as designers, but they can obviously code. Right. And for them, they don't, they didn't pick a side on the language wars, so they don't really care if they're installing NPM or Node or Ruby. I think just on the uh, Windows side, I think Node's first class support for Windows from the very beginning was a huge boon for its adoption. I think that. That mm -hmm. served it really well, and I think Ruby's always had issues uh, on Windows, and you know there's been huge efforts to improve that, but it's always like after the fact. You know, it's kind of like uh, a security practice. You can't just bolt security on afterwards onto your onto your software. It has to be <laughs> you know something that you think of from day one. And it seems like you know cross platform support is another one of those things that once you don't prioritize it early on, it's just really hard to get it right later. I think. The Ruby mm -hmm. community's probably suffered a bit from that. Yeah, I uh, as an aside, I just built a gaming PC for myself, and I haven't been using Windows for about a decade now. So I'm recently back in the flow of everything on the Windows side. So I can, I can actually test bugs now. It's amazing. Um, but like 
everything sucks over here. (laughs) (laughs) I just try to install like simple things and it's taking me like 15 clicks and I can't find the links. And like, I get why, you know, it's just brew install node is so easy. Mm -hmm. And like that, unless without some support from Microsoft, that'll never be, you know, a thing you can do on windows. So there's always going to be, I think a barrier, uh, just kind of unfortunate, but I would love to see better windows support from Ruby. That's a hard, hard job. Sure it is. Yeah. So I got some questions about the core team and just how you formed the people that help make Middleman possible. But uh, to mm-hmm. take a note from Jerry, we do have to take a quick sponsor break. Um, so let's take that break real quick. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about the core team and start tilling into some of our closing questions, which I'm sure that the Internet is just dying to hear. So we'll take a break. We'll be right back. I have yet to meet a single person who doesn't love DigitalOcean. If you've tried DigitalOcean, you know how awesome it is. And here at the Changelog, everything we have runs on blazing fast SSD cloud servers from DigitalOcean. And I want you to use the code CHANGELOG when you sign up today to get a free month, run a server with 1 gig of RAM and 30 gigs of SSD drive space totally for free on DigitalOcean. Use the code CHANGELOG. Again, that code is changelog. Use that when you sign up for a new account. Head to digitalocean.com to sign up and tell them the changelog sent you. All right, we're back with Thomas Reynolds, maker of Middleman. Been talking through quite a bit of history of static site generators, a bit of, uh, you know, go love there where you're, I was trying to figure out a good way to say that, but just like some, 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 uh, impressedness if that's uh that's a thing to say from you towards the go community mm-hmm. about the way they're doing things too and i'm, I'm kind of curious on that note before we go into the core team thoughts and, and whatnot but i'm curious if um if you were building a middleman today and it was ground zero what would you build it in that's a great question i would probably go is probably uh where i would build it and i actually I have some negative thoughts about Go, such as their dependency management requiring Git, which is a little weird. But uh, other than that, it's just it's a really slim language, and their whole goal is to have one way of doing everything, and that kind of aligns with, you know, a lot of the uh, frustration from Ruby of having like three ways to do everything. So I think it's a nice slim language, and its compile story to different targets is pretty nice. Uh, I also, as just a joy in coding, I really really love Closure. Uh, Closure is always been this close to working on node i think it's actually done now so the idea of just being able to you know npm install middleman or something i get to write it in the language with the features i like everyone else gets to use javascript for their configuration um i think that'd be pretty cool too so i was thinking of a name while you were talking there go man could be kind of cool <laughs> go man go middle, middle go there's no good you're names. always trying to name things adam i know i know so go man go i like that actually <laughs> So with a seven-year history, I got to imagine that over these years, you've uh, made some friends, those friends have become core team members, contributors. Can you talk a bit about the history or even highlight some people over the years that have helped uh, make Middleman possible that may not have gotten recognition elsewhere? Totally. Um, I have about four core team members now. I'm always looking for more, uh, but it's a responsibility and it's you know not the funnest job. Uh, to just be fielding bug reports or triaging. So uh, Ben Hollis has been my partner for three or four years now. 
Uh, he is an engineer up at Amazon, and his cycle basically works so that when he's on a middleman project, we're getting great support and great features, and we're working together. When he's not, that's cool. I'm probably on one, so I'm also contributing features. But you know, I don't expect year-round or even like month-round uh, contributions from people. Just having a little bit of backup and a little uh, someone else to check my code and make sure I'm not making a huge mistake is um, completely amazing. Um, Carl Freeman has also helped out a lot. He's pretty big in the Node community, or sorry, not the Node community, the Ember community over in Europe as well. Uh, so he, you know, keeps me legit on uh, making sure JavaScript doesn't get broken too badly. Uh, let's see. Elliot Appleford has recently jumped in, and uh, he's also in the United Kingdom. He's a Ruby. He's a much better Rubyist than I, so he's able to answer with like you know all these years of backend experience, a lot of my Ruby questions uh, to keep me again from suiting myself in the foot. And he's doing a great job managing uh, the GitHub and you know closing out things, reporting things as duplicates, uh, all that kind of squishy stuff that uh, can eat up a lot of time. And then recently we've had uh, another contributor, uh, Dennis. Guntwig, that don't test my German. Uh, he is uh, a beast, and like the pull requests coming out of him are amazing. And it's just like, holy cow, he did this in a weekend. Uh, so having like actual large feature development done by someone other than me has been really, really great. And then you know everyone who's ever contributed uh, to the documentation site is absolutely amazing. Uh, there's just let's see, there's been 113 contributors to Core, and let's see, there have been. I'm not going to make this come up. Middleman guides. There's, been, you know, there's been hundreds and hundreds. How many? 265 on middleman guides. Yeah, 265 people who helped uh, with the documentation made everyone's lives easier. So they're all amazing and couldn't do it without them. So is everyone listed um, under org slash middleman slash people? Are all those uh, contributors then, or, or just only a few? Those of are them? all people or, who sorry, have the commit members. bit. Yep. Okay. So we don't have like we don't have we have a couple of email threads. We don't have like a core you know email group or anything gotcha. like that. It's pretty light. But um, all those people have been making you know invaluable contributions over the seven years. Awesome. I want to make sure we link up to that page. So we'll if you're listening to this, we'll link that link up as well as the other individuals that uh, that Thomas has mentioned in the show notes. So the show notes will be I think what changelog.com slash one six nine. This episode one sixty nine, Jared. I can't believe it, man. It's real. Jeez crazy man Believe but it. uh i guess you know when we're talking about the people that have stepped up to help out and and uh, you mentioned your forum earlier to allow the community to sort of step in and and you not be burnt out we, you know jerry we've talked about sustaining open source on this sh- on this show with mike perrin before and and several other times in other episodes but thomas what kind of insights can you share that you've done over the years to guard yourself against burnout and maybe even a touch on that could be um, how you've how you've sort of fostered this community that's that's whether you've tried to or not has come up around middleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just for me, I think you know, just be nice to people. There was a whole raft of GitHub public GitHub spats like on bug reports for like you know maintainers are yelling at contributors and just not you know you can shut that stuff down. Uh, same old normal people, soft skills. Uh, I get to use them. I'm a manager. I do it all day. Uh, so this is just managing random people on the internet, which is a little harder. But you know, be nice. Everyone will be nice to you. The Ruby community has always been nice. Uh, so I think that's mostly like. And once you have a, once you have this backup, once you have this community behind you, you know, you're not going to get mean emails in the middle of the night. You're not going to feel as much stress. I think uh, about having to like 
I don't know, constantly be working on this thing. For me, I check in like 9 a.m. first thing at work, uh, do a little bug triaging. If there's anything horrible, I try to fix it on the spot, but then I don't think about it until the next day. Or until I get inspiration, I find a new language feature I want to do, then I'll do that on my own free time. But, you know, it hasn't been seven years of continuous development. There's definitely, you know, these, like I said, we've been we've been stable for three years. So it's just been little bug fixes and me exploring on my own. I think that exploring also helps me, you know, avoid getting burnt out or right. avoid just having this fear that I don't even want to look at my own code anymore. Like, you have to nip that in the bud. You have to refactor as soon as you start hating your own code. You can't just let it be there forever because yeah. you'll never go back. That's interesting. We've, we've, uh, like I said, we've talked about burnout several times on the show and it, and it just seemed to me during the show that you've, you've, uh, whether you've tried to purposefully or not, you've found something to avoid the burnout. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and Jerry, we had that call on curl 17 years of curl. I mean, that guy was like two hours a day. Um, and there's a commitment there. On so there's a commitment, yeah. yeah, on average, two hours a day for 17 years. That's like a long time. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and it seems like somehow you've, you've found um, the secret to not getting burnt out. Yeah, that might just be my personality. <laughs> I've also been at the same job for like almost five or six years now, too. Just, I don't know, walk away. You can always walk away. You can come back. Just don't burn any bridges and... Just know, I mean, I've always known that I intend to support this for the long term. So, you know, again, keeping myself from burning out is super important to that. Right. And when I said that guy, I meant Daniel Stenberg. I always forget people's names. I got to go back in a list yeah. and look them up and not be offensive to people. But uh, Daniel's pretty awesome. Shout out to Daniel. There was just yeah. uh, that article going around by, um, I forget what library he was a developer of, but he's, you know, giving up active development because there's no money in it. And try as evil eight, like, you know, people are getting rich off his work and he's not able, you know, to work this as a full-time job. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think fr it frustrates anyone at a high level in open source. Some people are able to have like such a crucial piece that they can monetize it through support or, you know, contracting or even these special feature levels, kind of like a sidekick is a really good example. Yep. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I like working. I do agency work because I like to work. So I would like to be on a beach while people use middleman, but I'm also probably just going to go back to work the next weekend. <laughs> well, now's about the, uh, the time we turned it over to our super awesome ending show questions. Um, the first question, uh, I don't know, Joe, you want to take you? Let me take it. Go for it, bro. So this is the easy one. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, easy one maybe to it's answer not or easy one to ask. Easy one to ask. <laughs> it's always it's always easy to ask, right? Yeah. Uh, so Thomas, you've you've been doing what you've been doing for quite a while. I gotta imagine that over these years, you've you've uh, got a list of people, whether you've made it purposefully or not. They're your heroes. Who out there in the programming world is your hero? Um. Yeah, I think I mentioned. I mean, as a group, I think the Ember team has been spectacular. I think I really respect those. Uh, all those folks for, you know, having a commit to, commitment to stability, having a commitment to documentation, um, and really guiding their community as, like, there's a other bunch of shiny things around, just basically saying, you know, we're going to keep getting better, and we're not going anywhere. Uh, their documentation has been uh, an example that I've tried to follow, and their community management is even way, 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 way better than mine. Uh, so that whole team is absolutely amazing. Um, Hudacats is a, you know, He's a he's a Ruby master. 
they use uh, middleman over there at Tilda, and I've just kindly asked that he never look at my ruby for fear of <laughs> the the look the look of uh, yeah. I should probably just give up ruby now and never do it again. Uh, but th- that whole group is awesome. Very cool. Next up, we mentioned contracts. We mentioned hamster. These are some ruby gems that have kind of been not just on your radar, but uh, in your toolkit lately. But if you had a free weekend and you were going to go hack on some stuff, um, what projects have you excited? What's on your radar of cool open source projects that you want to check out? Uh, so I've been using Pixie.js, which is a front-end library for doing 2D graphics in WebGL. I've um, been mm. using that at work, been using that on the side, and it's just this kind of you know flash-like layer that allows you to get back um, all kinds of amazing interaction and effects on the front end. So I would definitely go throw together some kind of crazy 3D experiment. Um, that whole project's open source, and that whole team is also doing a great job of uh, moving their project forward. Very interesting. Pic- Pixie is the fastest kid in town, as they say. I don't think I've seen yeah, that it's one amazing, yet. and it's no. you know uh, every single time I have to fight with a browser to animate like a square, I get super angry and just want to throw the whole DOM and the whole browser out the window. Um, <laughs> so if I can find refuge in WebGL or find refuge in a, in a tool like that and pretend Flash still exists, uh, you know that, that comforts me at night. Awesome. Uh, so for those out there that have listened to the show, you know, maybe they're like me and they've been following middleman for years or they're new and they just met you for the first time here on the show. Uh, and they want to help out. They want to kind of dig in a little bit to middleman. What's, what's a call to arms to the community, whether they're new to middleman or not new to middleman in ways they can step in and either look at version four or help out on the community. What are some ways to step in as the community can do, can do, uh, to help out middleman? Yeah, so I've always recommended um, that people just write about it or talk about it. You know, tweet about it, write about it, talk about it. Um, everyone's going to have a unique use case. They're going to have a unique perspective, and that all doesn't fit into the core documentation. So the more people, you know, I try to retweet, retweet, eh, can't even say that word, retweet, uh, as many blog posts as I can with these really interesting use cases. Uh, I'm always surprised. Sometimes I see, like, middleman extensions that I would have never, ever imagined could be written, and it's just really awesome to see. So... Uh, the more you can just Google your question and you get an actual answer or even like a Stack Overflow answer, uh, the better it is for everyone. You mentioned extensions. That's something we didn't really dive too deeply into the show about because this isn't a comprehensive show like here's what Middleman is. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe we could take a minute to mention the extensions, the project, project templates, and the different deployment options you, you have. I mean, you've got tons of extensions there made by the community. Some I could imagine are commissioned, some that are just there because somebody needed it. And then you can also search those extensions as well. So it's pretty easy to sort of limit down to some things you want. Like, let's say you want to deploy with onto AWS. There's, there's an extension for that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was something, you know, even in the rails days, like the ability to have these plugins, these extensions was super powerful to take the load off the core team. So I tried to follow that example. Uh, one of my philosophies with middleman, which is pretty different from most static generators is, uh, we want you to write code. It may not be very complicated Ruby, but at least you have all the tools and, uh, the power that code gives you, uh, to make your dreams, you know, real. We don't want to be like one of these generators that all you have is one config file or one JSON file and try to like, fit your entire stack, your entire pipeline to, you know, that really rigorous structure. So as part of that, uh, we farm out as much information, as much API stuff as we can to the extension uh, API. And that lets people do 
you know, pretty much whatever they want. They can hook into most parts of the process. They can replace parts of the process. They can hook into uh, new project template generation. They can hook in and just, you know, add a single file to the page that doesn't, or to the site that doesn't exist. Like, you know, do an API request, get that bundle back, make that a static API resource here. Uh, there's all kinds of really good extensions because we've opened up as much uh, Ruby access as possible to the extension libraries. Cool. So yeah, some of the great ones, um, deploy, middleman deploy, which one of the core team members is actually the lead on, will deploy to everything. You want to go to GitHub pages, you want to go to AWS, you want to go you know, to any CDN, it's all built into that one package. Um, lets you not have to worry about that. You don't even have to talk to an ops guy. You can just get your website on the line. Very cool. I'm hoping that one's middleman four compatible at this point. Yeah, so that's me slowly realizing that... Uh, <laughs> I'll go look at like third-party extensions. And be like, why did that break? Like in my mind, I made no breaking API changes. Mm. So there's like, uh, you know, Ruby makes it relatively hard to keep certain uh, things out of scope. So it's like, oh, I didn't realize that was a public method people were using. So I got to go through and either you know reopen a couple of those um, APIs for people, make them stable and public, or uh, work with the extension authors to figure out you know why they're not using what I see to be as the, the canonical way to do the same thing. Speaking of uh, deployed, Jared, uh, mm-hmm. we mentioned a little earlier in the show when we were talking about Middleman 4, and Jared, you were ranting a bit about immutable data structures and ha- uh, Hamster and some of the things you've hit with Middleman 4 in the efforts of building out our new site, beyondcode.tv. Um, so for those out there listening now, it's a brand new thing we're launching, but we've been producing Beyond Code for a while. It's a brief interview series we produce at conferences at the after parties. And so the first one was at Keep Review Weird. Uh, the second one was at Space City JS. The third one was at GopherCon. And the fourth one, season four, uh, most recently was at your conference, Jared, NEJS Conf yep. there in uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, which was super awesome. So we've got four seasons in the can. We're about to launch beyondcode.tv, which if you're listening to this right now, you can go there now, beyondcode.tv. Check it out. It's probably days launched. So if there's anything, any issues you see, Report them on GitHub. It's open source on GitHub. Find a link on the site. I'm sure we'll link out to to uh, the GitHub repo because it'll be there. So if you find bugs, let us know. Uh, and as Jared mentioned, also we have been producing Change All Weekly, our weekly email, using Middleman for quite a while. And uh, Thomas, you mentioned your affinity for Rake, and that's how you kind of got into Ruby early on. Uh, well, a lot of Change All Weekly is a big old Rake task that uh, works with the Trello API to allow us to use Trello as a CMS. So we've been using middleman in some unique ways uh, and, and obviously breaking in some ways as well to, to produce both of, the, both of those sites. Um, That's cool. But uh, I want to say that before we close the show. So Thomas, thanks for so much for coming on the show. I mean, whether you know it or not, uh, we've wanted to have you on the show for quite a while because we've had this you know, love affair with your software for a bit. And it was just would make sense to get you on the show and talk about what you've been doing and version four coming out and, and uh, a bit of your history and software development and open source. Uh, is there anything that we missed? Anything you want to say in closing before we wrap up the show? No, it's been great. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm glad I haven't given you too many heartaches. Nah. <laughs> that's, my, that's my number one fear is someone out there is cursing my name at all points in time as you get popular. So I'm glad it's been good for you guys. And um, hit me up if you ever need anything. Awesome. Well, Thomas, thanks so much for joining us on the show. To everyone listening, thanks so much. I mentioned beyondcode.tv. Check that out. If you find any bugs or anything like that, let us know. Hit us up on GitHub for that. 
Uh, also, Changelog Weekly, that's a weekly email we ship out every Saturday. It, it covers everything that Jared and I and the rest of the team finds in open source every week. Everything from our latest episodes to the most cool headlines and links and repos that we find ourselves as well as our ping repo. So, Jared, we have uh, a ping repo, as you know, on GitHub that we tell everybody to submit things to. So if you find something cool, check out our ping repo. It's slash, change, slash the changelog slash ping. Um, submit something there to the issues. We'll link it up in the weekly email and uh, boom, we'll go with the dynamite. So changelog.com slash weekly. Until next week, um, we will say goodbye for now. And I won't step on my foot today because uh, not knowing who the guest is next week. I'm just not going to say it at all. So we'll leave the show there. We'll say goodbye now. See ya. Thanks, Thomas. Take care.